Hi everybody and welcome to Project Dreammaker and I'm I'm thrilled today to be joined by uh, Gilles Chavet. He uses him, he and pronouns as the executive director of HARS, that's the HIV AIDS Regional Services, which is an organization that provides support, education, and harm reduction services to individuals um, living with and affected by or at risk of HIV infection in southeastern Ontario. Jill, so great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for coming. It's great to see you, Stephen, after I was trying to do the math, I think it's over 26 years. Yeah, just that. I could see the white in my, my it just gets whiter and whiter in my beard, right? Yeah, but, but thanks for reminding me how old we are. That's great. <laughs> and so now this podcast, we, I interview artists and entrepreneurs, but I have another category and it's called For Those in the Game. And this is where you fall, you fall under that roof where we want to talk to people who either run NPOs or, or do work. I have another, uh, someone who works with the homeless coming on the show because it's its own form of entrepreneurship, right? And we're going to talk about what, uh, the, what you run, the, the NPO that you run and how you've, how you've grown that because it's very much like growing a business, right? Except the work that you do is really important. Um, and I, I've said this on the show before, this is this podcast is about people who are starting out and starting over. And of course, I, I had a younger guest, you know, make the point that, you know, it, it doesn't matter how old you are. I was really appreciative of that because I released my own online course a couple of years ago. Um, but we want to talk about the beginnings, because what I found is with entrepreneurs and with artists and with those who do what you do, a lot of that is formed when we're young. And so let's talk about, take me a little bit back to your childhood and how you grew up and, and how that sort of informed you. Sure. Uh, well, I'm the oldest of four children, grew up in Northern Ontario in a mining community, Sudbury, the nickel capital of the world. My dad was uh, a miner, worked underground for 30 years. My mother was a registered nurse. Uh, mother loved her job. Dad didn't care for his and couldn't wait to retire. Um, and uh, I, you know, I identify as a gay man and I knew that I was different without the language for what that meant uh, when I was really young. And um, what, one of the things that I've discovered is that my experience is similar to that of many um, gay men in that um, when you feel like you don't belong, um, you do, or you feel like, you know, your, your identity or something that's core to your identity isn't being val validated by society, you do things to compensate for that. And so many of us, you know, overachieve or get involved in something where we can get praise for something that's sort of external to who we are. So that was very much my experience growing up in a small, you know, um, remote community. I mean, Sudbury is pretty geographically isolated. And, um, you know, considering that I, you know, grew up in the 80s, really, pre-social media, pre, you know, LGBTQ plus um, representation on television, there was really a sense of um, isolation and sense of being alone and the only person like me. So um, you, I also, you know, think that I had an experience, you know, young, the loss of a sibling that really marked things for me. You know, you think about those, um, those turning point moments and 
you know, where you learn significant lessons in your life. And for me, that loss that I experienced when I was around, you know, five or six years old, I um, developed a tape where I felt like I was responsible for protecting and looking after people, particularly my family, because if I didn't, I would lose them. And so, um, Another thing that was connected to that is the role that spirituality and faith and religion played in my childhood and that through the experience of that loss, um, my mother in particular um, turned to her faith um, for solace and comfort. And through her experience, and this was in the time of, you know, the height of television, you know, TV evangelism, the PTL club, stuff um my mother got connected to um a church in Sudbury and um years later when um I myself was looking for something um I got connected to it too and so um even though we came from you know like sort of a lower middle class background the um sense of ethics that I was raised in both informed by you know my parents, parents, but also the connection to um, our faith is, you know, the whole, the whole line about, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. And so I was taught generosity and a sense of looking out for um, marginalized people from my parents and my grandparents, um, but also as somebody who identified as being different. I think I was always tuned in to um, the for lack of a better word, the, the suffering that people experience when they're marginalized. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's a little bit about, you know, how I came to this work is just my own experience of um, seeking validation, looking for um, my people. Um, one of the things that's sort of ironic, you know, as, as a gay man is that I found a sense of community in a church that ultimately didn't validate or welcome me. And so it's that sense, again, of being an outsider to things that I think probably sensitized me to the experience of other people who feel like they're outside of things. Yeah, and I, I know you've talked about this, and this is fascinating to me, that the one place that you were getting acceptance from was a church where you had to hide who you were, right? And when when did you realize, you say you knew you were different, when did you realize that you were gay? You know, is there a certain point? Yeah, I, I think that I knew that I was different without necessarily having, you know, gay language for it. Right. Uh, I was really young, probably, you know, under six years old. And, um, you know, I knew that, you know, I had... Um, we even call them attractions because I don't think that you're, you know, sexually mature, even curious at that age, but a sense of um, being drawn to, um, you know, whether it's male energy and, but also, you know, most of my friends were, you know, the girls in school or the girls in the neighborhood into, you know, and again, this is, so much of this is a stereotype, but, you know, in, in, in my case, you know, a lot of those stereotypes or out, you know, I was, you know, into the arts and, you know, into, um, you know, fashion and making things pretty and wasn't, you know, especially um, good at sports or at least um, team sports. And so, um, again, you're very much the stereotype. But yeah, when I started at, um, I think it was 16 years old, I um, started to, you know, backtrack a little bit. No, that's a, that's a couple of um, years with my with my mother um so dabbling in this evangelical church that you know we were attending and my um 
maternal grandfather who is very devout but Catholic. We were, you know, raised Roman Catholic. Um, at one point, said, "Okay, you know, either you're going to raise the kids, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, or you're going to raise the kids, you know, in this evangelical church, um, but you're going to confuse the kids." And I think that was his way of saying, you know, I don't really approve of this and you need to come back, which is ultimately what my mother did. And so, uh, you know, we see the Roman Catholic Church. And when I was a teenager and starting to ask questions about all sorts of things, and I think part of my involvement, you know, in the church was um, a sense of affinity, but also a sense of feeling like I've got to do what I can to not be who I am because that's not um, acceptable. Wow. And so if I was getting involved in a church, then I was doing something that people would validate me for. Um, but also subconsciously it was, well, maybe this is the thing that's going to make me not feel the way that I feel. You know, maybe God will, you know, um, save me from this or make me different. And so um, I, around 16 years old, um, had this sense of um, seeking out something else and i had this memory from years before of you know that church being a really warm welcoming place and lo and behold it kind of was so i went on my own had a driver's license i went into this you know church on a sunday morning by myself um happened to see somebody that i went to high school with wasn't like i was friendly with but we weren't in the same classes and she um, and a group of her friends said well why don't you come sit with us which was so foreign to me because you, know, you go to a Roman Catholic mass, you sit with your family yeah. facing forward. It's not a, an especially social place. You're, you're counting the minutes. And if the priest is going over his eight minutes for his homily, you know, you're thinking like, okay, we've, we've got brunch plans here. Let's get out. Um, so the idea of going to church and sitting with your friends um, was just so foreign to me. And then afterwards, um, I'll never forget this, they invited me um, for lunch with them at Swiss Chalet, which Swiss I- Swiss Chalet, yes. Oh yeah, all, of, all the Christian kids go to Swiss Chalet after church. And, and so for me, I thought, oh my goodness, like I don't know these people, but they've welcomed me. And then they extended, you know, an invitation to, um, you know, be part of their circle. And so for somebody who felt on the outside of things, up until then my whole life, feeling like I was included somewhere was different. And there's no question it was really appealing. And then, you know, shortly after I got involved in some youth leadership stuff. And then, uh, you know, when high school was, you know, ending, I started thinking about what's next and enrolled in Bible college. And again, part of that was this sense of, um, there's, there were two things going on, both the sense of, you know, calling as they talk about it in, you know, in religious circles around having a sense of, you know, whether it's destiny or, um, you know, something that you are um, compelled to have to do. And then part of it was fulfilling this sense of, you know, if I do all of these things, maybe I won't actually be, maybe there's something that I can do to, to stop this from happening. Um, you know, the whole pray the gay way, and I got involved in some, um, you know, what was known as, you know, ex-gay ministry or um, reparative therapy, thankfully only for a short time, uh, because I, I don't know what to attribute it to, but I had a sense while I was going through it that, A, it wasn't going to work, and B, um, it was clear to me that there were two different things going on. There was my relationship with my spirituality, right. and then there was my relationship with this spiritual community. And where, you know, I knew in my heart, for me, 
that being rejected from one did not mean being rejected from the other. And, you know, so I came to the conclusion, you know, after a couple of years in, you know, in, in Bible college that um, A, you know, my, my sexual orientation was going to change, but B, um, you know, my creator, however you want to define that, that entity, that thing that's greater than we are, um, accepted me, even if this community wouldn't. And I also, you know, had the good fortune of knowing that I had a family that was a soft, soft place to land. And my leaving this faith community would not also mean leaving my family. And I've got friends who've had very similar experiences to me whose, whose families were also in the evangelical church. And their experience of coming out was very, very different because they also had to confront um, the potential that they would also lose their families. And I didn't have to worry about that. I always knew that, um, you know, that even though they, it might take them a while to come along, um, that they eventually would, and they did. And, um, you know, my family's been incredibly supportive and I'm, I'm you know, very, very fortunate. Yeah, it, it's, it's I, I've heard, um, I've had a couple of friends who um, they came out and they lost their families. And um, the, like the parents in that world, that evangelical world just said no, right? Like they, they just couldn't accept it. And I, I, I think back to, I was also raised Catholic and moved to the evangelical. I remember as a, as a teenager, young teenager, what you're saying about just trying to get out of church. I mean, I would stand in the back with the ushers. You know, I'm at this Italian Catholic church. Hey, what are you guys doing? What are we eating for lunch? Right. And, and then just trying to like, oh, let's like, let's go. And then that experience of going to an evangelical church where you are sitting with your friends. It's a very, um, like for me, and I wasn't an outsider, right? I, I am like every bit of privilege, right? Educated, straight, white, and male. And I'm aware of all of that. I was an outsider in the sense of, I was a young artist who didn't know it yet. And so, but not, and so for me, that was special right? To, to, to feel that embrace. Um, but I can only imagine what it would be like for you where you, you want the embrace, but you can't tell them who you really are. Um, because then, then they're not, they're not going to accept you for that, which is super heartbreaking to me that we still see this, this happen. Um, I want to move on to you, uh, after, you, so you, you come out and you have some of like your story, man, is amazing. Um, but so you come out and um, you get married and we're, def we're definitely going to go back to that. So you, you get married and, and your husband and uh, you and your husband moved to uh, Prince Edward County in 2005 and, and you run a couple of small businesses. What kind of businesses were you running? Well, you know, getting back into, you know, gay stereotypes, when uh, my husband and I were daydreaming about eventually leaving the, uh, you know, hustle and bustle of, you know, the city of Toronto, where we were both working and living, um, we started thinking about, well, okay, you know, what would, what would a smaller community look like? What would be important for us as far as places to be? And what would we do? got there. And um, I had the good fortune of, you know, working um, for, you know, for a business at the time where I had some flexibility around telecommuting. And that was a relatively new thing then. 
And so I thought, right. well, I could probably, you know, reduce my hours of work um, a little bit and then start this business. So what we did was we bought, um, you know, a big century home in uh, right in downtown Picton, downtown Picton. I say that in air, air quotes, population 4,000, um, but um, opened a bed and breakfast, which we ran for um, a few years. And that was a really cool way of getting to know the community that we would now be living in. It forced us to get out there and see all there was to see so that we can make recommendations to our guests. Um, and this was before, you know, Airbnb and that whole short-term accommodation exploded. But around the time that people's awareness of Prince Edward County as a tourist destination beyond just Sandbanks Provincial Park was beginning. And there were you know, fewer accommodations than there were tourists. So we were very busy and, and successful, but we learned in particular me that um, as much as the tasks around running a bed and breakfast were enjoyable and I enjoyed, you know, greeting guests and, you know, preparing the food and doing the, you know, the books and the registrations and right. for days, um, I actually didn't enjoy my house feeling like it was public space. And so I tired of that pretty quickly, um, but then opened a, um, a design business. So I had a retail store that, um, you know, uh, sold home decor items and it was the, um, it was the feeder to an interior decorating business um, that I ran for about eight years. And, uh, you know, part of that I ran part-time while I was working where I am now. Um, but um, yeah, it, it was just a, a pretty creative time when you're working in a small community that's um, kind of emerging as a place. It feels like there's all sorts of opportunity to be entrepreneurial because you start identifying these little holes where it's like, oh, this, you know, the town doesn't have this thing. Um, so here's an opportunity for someone who's entrepreneurial or, oh, we don't have, you know, a natural food shop or, oh, we don't have a kitchenware place or, oh, we don't have this service. And uh, so, you know, back in the mid 2000s, there was a lot of that going on. And there still is. I mean, Prince Edward County is kind of exploding right now. But you came in at a time where you could do something that felt small but would have big impact because the population was so small. And uh, it also got me really um, interested in um, municipal politics because you really see the impact of whatever decision is made impacts the people living in that community you know, directly. And anything that you get involved in by way of you know, nonprofit work, community work, charity work has visible, visible tangible impact. And so that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that we forget about the importance of municipal politics, um, at least certainly within, you know, your, your field, and we're going to, we're going to get to what you do now, but, but it, it, it gets overlooked a lot of one of my, uh, one of the, one of the guests on the show that I'm going to have is the executive vice president of the Ontario Liberal Party. Um, and there is this thing where it's like, oh, the, you know, the, the province or the country, and certainly that's important. But you're right on a, on a on a local level, especially in smaller places, um, and I've seen this in my hometown. It it makes a huge difference, like you know how how you connect to that, and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna connect to that right there because you run now um, this nonprofit that you've grown um, from nine to seventy staff, and. <clears throat> Tell me a little bit about what what HARS does because I I know from I know from our pre-interview and, and talking to you and and like what it was like um, 
for HIV um, and that scare for, for gay men, particularly in the 90s, was like, yeah. And now it, it feels like we've come, um, we've come a distance from that. But can you, can you draw a tie between what you do now and then what it was like for you in the 90s as a, as a, as a gay man living in fear of, uh, of HIV? Yeah, uh, there's there's a few things that you know come to mind when I think about your question, Stephen, and and one is you know one of the earliest um, memories that I have that are related to my sexuality and HIV/AIDS was uh, there was a um, made-for-TV movie sometime in the I think late '80s, mid to late '80s, called An Early Frost, and I remember watching it um, on television and feeling a sense of identification and also dread. And I remember the film ending, and it's one of these, you know, back in the time, and it's only more recently that we're seeing positive representation in the media of 2SLGBTQ plus people. But at the time, most of the portrayals were tragic. And so here was a story of, you know, uh, a young man um, essentially coming home to die of AIDS. And I thought as I was watching this, even though I was still developing language around it and also conflicted around like, am I really gay? I hadn't had any sexual experiences, but you know, I knew where my attractions were and I was fighting all of that. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, all the more reason to stay in the closet because if I act on this or if I, you know, I embrace my identity, this is this is a foregone conclusion for me because that was the narrative at the time is that gay men equals diabetes. And I came of age at a time where um, it was really the height of the losses. And so um, when I moved to Toronto in 95, um, just after Bible college, um, happened to coincide with the peak of HIV AIDS related deaths, um, particularly in like in North America in mm. uh, what we refer to as you know GBMSM gay bi or other men who have sex with men within that community in particular, and I was working um, in a in a church, a large um, you know progressive um, church that's also um, you know a, a social justice organization that's been on the you know vanguard of a number of different human rights issues, um, not the least of which is you know queer rights issues. And at the time that I started working there, uh, we were doing on average two funerals a week. And uh, most, mostly of young gay men um, who I'd say, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, certainly younger than I am now. And I, I was, you know, young, um, you know, fresh out of school. Um, so a little bit, you know, outside of the generation that was most impacted, but I got a front row seat from the standpoint of assisting people in their experience of loss at a really young age. And uh, so that was my connection, both, you know, you know, as somebody who identifies as a gay man and for, you know, gay men of, you know, my age and, you know, older than me and, you know, a little less so today for someone who's young and just coming out. A lot of our identity is um, there's there's a there's a shadow or a cloud that hangs over it, and that is HIV/AIDS because of that association between you know HIV/AIDS and and gay men or bisexual men, and so um, 
the work that I do now is, you know, <laughs> I've had a series of what I like to, you know, Oprah would call full circle moments, right? So the idea of like feeling rejected by a church and then, you know, leaving, you know, Bible college and thinking, okay, well, you know, clearly ministry is not in the cards for me, even though I feel this, this drawing towards it. And then, you know, being employed by a church, essentially doing the work of ministry. And then years later, um, you know, happening upon a job posting when I was, you know, leaving the corporate world and I was looking for, you know, a short term job while I kind of found my feet and decided what was next for me. And it happened to be in an HIV service organization. So um, HARS or HIV AIDS Regional Services, where I'm the executive director, it's, it's an organization that's been um, active in Southeastern Ontario since 1988. And a lot of HIV service organizations were, you know, birthed out of this crisis time in the, you know, mid to late 80s and early 90s, where, you know, governments um, weren't doing enough. Um, you know, the stigma against the LGBT community was so strong that people didn't kind of want to touch it. And so it was... You know, it was the community and our allies who mobilized to look after our people. Um, now, it's it's not to say that you know HIV/AIDS exclusively you know um, is you know, impacting queer people. It's not. Um, but the narrative at the time was we were disproportionately impacted, and so it was mostly queer people and allies who mobilized to create these. Um, these mechanisms to provide care and support. Eventually they started receiving, you know, government funding and funding from other sources and uh, they became a little bit more structured. And so HARS is, you know, part of a number of similar organizations in Ontario that are part of what's called the Ontario AIDS Network. And um, so I um, got a position doing, um, you know, sexual health education and community development, particularly for uh, men who have sex with men back in 2013 and uh, we were a small organization as you you know, mentioned earlier you know we were eight or nine staff and then um, si so simultaneous to you know the HIV AIDS crisis changing so back in 1996 um, was the introduction of what's called highly um, active antiretroviral therapy or what was known at the time as you know drug cocktails and people who were on you know death's door were um, were kind of reviving and people, you know, they were calling it the Lazarus effect, right? So people who were at death's door, you know, were suddenly being, you know, feeling well and could return to work in some cases. And, um, you know, some, you know, are, are alive to this day and living, you know, stand to live long, healthy lives. Um, and so the advent of, you know, different ways of treating HIV. Um, and now there's a whole lot of new, you know, prevention strategies that exist. Um, we're, we're living in a different time where HIV AIDS is um, concerned in, in the developed world. I mean, in, in some parts of, um, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, it continues to be, you know, a major challenge. Um, again, questions of privilege, right? And it's, yeah. it, uh, you can almost, you can predict it. We've seen it in this pandemic, right? So what, what um, communities are disproportionately impacted? It's the marginalized, it's those who are living in poverty, it's racialized people. And um, so even though HIV AIDS has changed a lot in North America, um, other crises have cropped up and uh, not the least of which is the drug poisoning crisis. And so again, not a, you know, sexy or glamorous, um, 
community. Um, just like, you know, HIV AIDS was the thing that nobody wanted to touch. And so people don't want to touch or talk about um, substance use. They don't want to talk about the mental health challenges and the trauma that contributes to people's use of substances. We're living um, during a time where, you know, people have to, um, people really have to hustle in order to feel well. And we all self-medicate with something, you know, to make us feel well. So whether it's, you know, food or sex or shopping or whatever it is, um, but we stigmatize um, substance use. And so a lot of the work that we do now, um, in addition to providing support to people living with HIV, doing education, getting people aware of, you know, emerging prevention, prevention strategies like PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, we do a lot of work around addressing the drug poisoning crisis. And so, yeah. So just, okay, so I, I just want to stop you for a second sure. because I, I, some of our yeah. listeners might not know what the drug poisoning crisis is. Can you break that, uh, yeah. like just briefly break that down for us? Absolutely. So, um, you know, People may have heard in the news about, you know, the um, drug, po not necessarily drug poison crisis, they'll hear about it as like the opioid crisis. Um, and so we, we broaden that a little bit because the crisis doesn't extend strictly to opioids. You know, people have certainly heard about, you know, Oxycontin and how, you know, Oxycontin was taken off the market. And so you've got all of these people who were being prescribed this, who were then moved to another class of drugs if they had a doctor who was willing to do that. And so now you have all of these people who are taking fentanyl and um, you know, there's whole systems level issues um, that um, you know, make this a really complicated conversation. But um, the substances that people use if they're not um, being prescribed appropriate medications to manage whatever challenge they have. And sometimes it's an issue of physical pain, but sometimes it's another condition that hasn't been diagnosed. And so, um, you know, for example, a lot of people with ADHD self-medicate with, um, you know, with caffeine um, and other substances that make them feel like they can function through their day. And so when you intersect that with poverty, adverse childhood experiences, the likelihood of people, um, you know, looking to substances in order to feel well um, increases. And so the substances that people access, if they're not you know, receiving good care from a physician, um, are street drugs. And we don't know what's in them a lot of the times. And most of the substances are contaminated. And so we're seeing huge, huge um, spikes in, um, you know, people would refer to them as overdoses. They're not really overdoses because overdose presumes that you're taking more of something than you right. should. This is people, you know, dosing what they would normally dose, except the what they think they're taking is not what they're taking, or it's been cut with something else. And so we're seeing huge rates of people um, dying or experiencing drug poisoning as a result of not just, you know, bad supply, but bad politics and bad laws um, that criminalize people who have experience trauma or poverty or mental health challenges. And so um, a lot of the work we do now is really around addressing um, the, the immediate needs of people who experience, um, you know, complex trauma, mental health challenges, sometimes dual diagnosis, but also the systems level issues that contribute to, um, you know, higher rates of problematic substance use.
Okay. Yeah. That listen, what you're doing is really important, and I I, I was aware of the opioid crisis. Um, it's I mean it, it it gets a lot of play, and I think what but again, it, I, it all goes back to marginalized communities, right? It, it it just feels like one of the things the pandemic has lifted the cover off for hopefully for a lot of people is understanding privilege, right? Like the, the, the thin gauze that we, that we hold over society and say, well, you know, we're all equal here. Like for example, in North America or in certain Western countries, we're all, and that is absolutely not true. And so, I mean, even looking at the vaccine rollouts and the access to pharmacies, right? Where you have a place like Rexdale in Toronto, which is a very wealthy place. And because it's wealthy, they have 12 pharmacies. And then you go to a place like Jane and Finch where it's not very wealthy and they don't have any pharmacies or they have one. Yeah. And so, and so this whole, um, I hope, my hope is that, that, that the pandemic has created um, an opportunity for people to see the uneven playing field that, that exists. And I mean, and you live it and you live it every day with your, um, with your job. But I, I did want to ask, and this is not an entrepreneurial question, but you, you, you've grown your staff um, from 90 to, to 70. And in case there's another person listening um, or some of the people listening to this podcast are interested in running an MPO, uh, how did you how did you manage to grow it? Because that's very much like growing a, a business, right? How did how did that happen? Yeah, well, and I mean, this is a really good tie into what we were just talking about about how the veil has been lifted and COVID. If there is a silver lining, is that it has really shone a light on the you know inequalities that exist in our society. Um, so there's a couple of parts to the expansion of the organization, and one is um, so about three years ago, um, and, and we've been aware of, you know, and, and we've been referring to it as, you know, the opioid crisis for a long time. We've been shifting the language around that because it's not just opioids um, that are causing drug poisoning. There's a whole lot of other substances that are tainted that are causing all sorts of problems. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of our work is, um, the philosophy is harm reduction, is, um, you know, minimizing people's unwanted negative impacts of whatever it is. So for example, sexual health, you know, a harm reduction strategy might be using condoms. It might be using um, PrEP, um, you know, taking a ride in the car. Harm reduction is wearing your seatbelt. Um, with substance use, um, things like, you know, having um, new, um, you know, in injection equipment for each time that you use, um, not sharing um, equipment with somebody else when you're using. So we've been in the work of harm reduction for years and years and years. And um, in fact, you know, this organization, as well as the local community health center, um, back in 91, I believe, were among the first in the province to start a needle and syringe program where you can bring in your used works and get new works. Um, and so we've been in this work for a long, long time. And about three years ago, um, there was an opportunity to apply for some funding um, to expand our harm reduction programming. And so we were successful at getting a grant that would allow us to purchase a used ambulance and go to some of the communities around Kingston that um, receive fewer services so that we can distribute things like Narcan kits so that people can help reverse um, an opioid overdose. We can distribute, um, you know, new um, injection inhalation supplies and, you know, let 
you know, facilitate people getting rid of their used equipment. And so that grew the team a little bit. And one of the priorities um, when we applied for that funding was to hire as many people we could who had lived or living experience of substance use. And uh, the magic that happened in making that very specific decision was that um, the ability to build a rapport with the people we serve when, you, when you've been there, you know, when you're part of the community has been way more effective than it could ever have been, for example, to hire people with all sorts of wonderful academic credentials that people work really, really hard for. Um, and they have got all the head knowledge, but you're not always speaking the same language. And so that was um, a really effective, it continues to be a really effective program. And it's what's led to the largest expansion of the organization, which is really only over the last 10 months. So when the pandemic began um, and things started shutting down, a lot of services that people who are marginalized depend on had to either close or reduce their services. And so, um, and of course, as people, you know, um, are locked down into their homes and not really mobile, or maybe they're working from home, you know, they become more attuned to what's going on outside. And um, we started paying more attention to something that's been existing in the area, well, in, in most communities for a long, long time. And that's homeless encampments, tent cities, um, that kind of thing. And so our team with our, our mobile outreach unit, was visiting these encampments and we've over years built, built really good trusting relationships with the people we serve who are living rough. And um, the city of Kingston said, you know, we have some um, funds related to, you know, COVID relief oh. that can be put towards addressing this challenge. And they saw the rapport that our team had with the people who were living in these encampments and said, you know, can you think of something that might help? And so, um, and I can't take credit for this. I've got an extraordinary team of people, um, three in particular, three um, people who uh, very, very quickly pulled together a proposal that went to city council and got funding for a pilot project to run what's called the integrated care hub. And what that does is it provides three major services. One is a drop-in space where people can come and, you know, get shelter from the elements, get some healthy food, um, you know, use showers and washrooms, um, store their stuff. Um, there's a rest zone where people can, you know, like sleep is important to stabilization, particularly if you are using substances. Um, and then a safe consumption site, or in Ontario, we refer, we refer to them as um, consumption and treatment services. And uh, so with this, we had to move very, very quickly to recruit the staff who are going to work this operation because it runs 24 seven. And so we were a staff at the time of 16 back in June of last year. And by August, September, we were up to 70 staff. And so it was all a pilot project. And we continue to just have, you know, short-term funding that gets extended. Um, right now we're funded through to the end of December and we're hopeful that other levels of government will come to the table to make this a sustainable program. But what makes it unique is that it is informed by the people we serve. And so a lot of times people who are marginalized, people who experience mental health challenges, who use substances, um, don't have access to services because the um, 
the benchmark around what the service provider expects um, can't be met by people. So for example, if you can't get mental health support because you're using substances, well, that's a barrier. You know, if you can't get help with your, um, with your substance use because you've got a significant mental health challenges that, challenge that's causing erratic behavior, well, that's a barrier. And so the idea is to provide low barrier care so that we can get people to a place of stabilization so that they can then engage with other services. And so it's a pretty cool model and um, one that you know is, is clearly um, needed because we see on average 100 unique individuals a day. Um, we have served since we've opened over 650 unique individuals. Um, it speaks to, wow. I mean, Kix is not a huge place, but it speaks to the, um, the degree of the, you know, crisis of both, you know, drug poisoning, but also, you know, lack of affordable housing, lack of supportive housing, um, you know, and all the social determinants of health that we talk about. Uh, and so <clears throat> for people listening who are not from Ontario, yeah. um, Kingston is about what, 500,000 people? No, it's about 150, 160,000 people. Oh. Yeah. And it's, uh, so it's situated, um, you know, between Toronto and Montreal off the 401. One of the interesting things about Kingston as it relates historically to, you know, the drug culture is it's kind of at the intersection of, you know, a major border crossing to the U.S., large centers right. like Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. It's on the 401 corridor where, you know, a lot of drug trafficking happens. And I learned something really cool that I think, you know, your, your listeners um, might find interesting as it relates to um, substance use stigma. Um, Kingston has historically been known as a town where a lot of people, um, their drug of choice is crystal meth. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a substance that's not well understood by the broader community. People understand opiates. They understand, you know, the idea of, you know, right. that kind of thing. Don't understand crystal meth quite as well. I didn't either. And in speaking with individuals who experience homelessness, um, crystal meth is actually a substance that they use in order to stay awake through the night when they feel most vulnerable because it's, it's a stimulant. It's something that, you know, keeps you awake. And so when I heard that, the penny dropped and I thought, oh gosh, if people actually had a, a safe place to stay, that might impact the degree to which they, um, they use crystal meth. If it's in fact part of a coping strategy or resilience strategy in order to feel safe when you're oh. most vulnerable, when it's dark, when you're sleeping outside on a bench or in a tent, it kind of stands to reason why that might be um, you know, a helpful thing to do. And so when I understood it that way, suddenly it didn't become this kind of nefarious thing. It became actually a, a practical and really, frankly, clever um, strategy that people are using. The unintended negative consequences can be really severe, but the genesis of people, you know, a number of people using crystal meth is simply an issue of poverty and um and lack of housing and so um yeah it's it's really interesting and it's um the more that i do this work the more that i realize that i have been privileged to not have been you know exposed to that world um and yet how rich 
um, your experiences when you get to know people who use substances and learn their stories, because there's nobody um, that I know who are more uh, resilient than the people that we serve. Yeah, I, I, I'm look, really looking forward to having um, a friend of mine on the show who works with homeless people and, and, and in Toronto and she advocates for them. Um, she works out of a church called Sanctuary. Um, and, you know, even just listening to her describe her wedding where she had all of her friends yeah. um, and what a riot it was. Um, it, but when you're in it with these people all the time, is there, do you ever, Jill, do you ever get um, a little bit overwhelmed? I know that like, I, there, there's, there are parts, there are times when, you know, people say, well, watch this movie and it's, and it's really sad or, or, and I'm like, I, 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 I don't need to watch a sad movie, man. I turned on the news today. Like that was pretty sad. And, and I'm not in that all the time, but you are. And so let's, let's, I'm going to, we'll, we'll extend this to any of my listeners who, uh, who are wanting to do what you do and work with it or do what you do. How do you cope with being in that all the time? It's, there's no question, it's heartbreaking work. Um, and it's heartbreaking work both because you um, empathize with the experiences of the people who you serve, the trauma that they've experienced, the hurt that they have, the sense of you know, frustration and sometimes hopelessness. And um, so there's, there's that heartbreak and there's the heartbreak of you know, somebody who you build a rapport with and you can see you can see the struggle and you know that there's only, you can only do so much and it's part of, you know, living in a broken system and in a world that, um, yeah. you know, stigmatizes and, and chooses to look away. So th that part's heartbreaking. Um, the other part is, you know, the anger that comes from looking at, gosh, if we could only just fix this. And, you know, when you when you become more familiar with the issues and go, gosh, if we could just decriminalize substance use, if we could only ensure safe supply, so many of the things that we encounter would be fixed. Um, so how do you get through it? Well, I think for me, um, now I, I'm not a frontline worker, so I've already got the benefit of that distance, um, but I am supporting uh, a staff of heartbroken people. And so for me, it's important to have, um, you know, creative outlets. It's also important to have, um, so a friend of mine, I don't know where he got this term, but he shared it with me and said that I could, uh, I could use it. Um, my honest posse. So having that, that group of people who are um, going to shoulder me up at work, um, who are not necessarily connected to it, um, although that's helpful too, because it's, it's always helpful to talk to somebody who gets it. Um, but to have people outside as well who will, A, hold the mirror up to me when I'm being a jerk. Um, so that's the whole honest posse bit. But they're your lifelines. So the people who can, for a moment, sort of take you out of things, what I'm learning, Stephen, the more that I do this work is um, my patience for what I refer to as first world problems gets smaller and smaller. So <laughs> I've, I've become like the worst person at a cocktail party because if somebody is complaining about, you know, you know, they, they got, you know, they picked up their car, um, you know, their brand new car and it wasn't exactly the color they wanted and how angry they are. I'm thinking like, Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you got problems. Yeah, yeah, uh, but, yeah. uh, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. No, I'm going to say something. It's really hard. Um, but, um, you know, it's, uh, 
yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, surrounding yourself with people who, um, who can uh, support you and, and support doesn't have to be anything more than just holding space, you know, for those days that are really shitty and uh, where you can just go like, you know, um, this sucks, the systems or lack systems suck, um, it's unjust, it's unethical. And, um, and there's, you know, that, that, that the thing that motivates me to, so again, back to your question is, um, it's not hard to find meaning in this work. The work is meaningful and you can see how it's meaningful as you do it. Um, what gets challenging is progress. Feeling like, okay, you know, you can see where this is leading and it's never a happy ending. And so finding those moments where you can be like, okay, you know, that was a right conversation with the right people in the room who can make decisions that can influence and change things. This feels like progress or on a micro level, you know, a relationship that you've been cultivating that's been really challenging with one of the people that you serve or with one of the staff, and you can see, oh, you know, they're relating to me a little bit differently today, or, oh, they're agreeable to trying this new thing. And, you know, you look for those moments of progress, because if, if you can't identify even small progress, it's hard to, um, it's hard to not lose hope. Yeah, I, I love this. I, I love the idea of small moments because now in, in your field, right, um, in, in what you do, those small moments are going to help balance um, just sort of the, the awfulness that, that you're swimming in, right? Like the, the, the marginalization, the poverty, um, you know, anybody with any empathy at all is going to feel at times like they're drowning. But it's also true, I think, for um, for entrepreneurs and artists. And I talked about this in another episode where you're always kind of swimming upstream. So <clears throat> finding those moments um, and a lot of I think a lot of like artists for sure and, and entrepreneurs. And, and I think that there is this uh, sense in, in all of them of being a tiny bit of an outsider. And so you know, so finding those moments of progress, like oh, this is, you know, this is, this is better is important. And they, and the, the other thing, the last thing, and we're going we're gonna to wrap this up, but the last thing I wanted to say is I love the concept of holding space. And I don't, <clears throat> I don't feel um, enough people understand that, that, that to, to empathize with people, it is not necessarily about you saying the right thing. It in fact is often you not saying anything at all. And you know, one of the phrases that I learned um, early on when I, I, I've done special needs work forever uh, with kids is that sucks. And like that sucks or this sucks. And in all you're doing is giving um, people an opportunity to be heard and, and not trying to impose you know, well, we, we got to fix this or we got to do this. No, no, just, just hold the space, right? And it's remarkable how we do that. And, and the example I would give for, for people listening is when you call a friend and you're having a bad day and they just let you vent, right? And suddenly you, you feel better, right? And I just, I wish collectively as a society that we would do a better job of holding space 
for people who use substance abuse, for um, for minorities, uh, for the poor, um, for the LGBTQ community, can we just hold space instead of rushing to judge? You know, just just hold the space, right? And 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 listen, like hear the story. And that's why I was I was so happy that you were you were you were coming on today to to tell your story and. And folks, you don't know this, but I could, I could have, I could have, I could have Gilles on again and tell more of his story. Like he, there's like, there's lots, but I think this is a great glimpse into, um, into a field, you know, the one you work in that's so important, but into also, you know, how somebody gets to where um, you get and you've been so successful. Um, uh, one last thing I'll just ask you as a, as a parting uh, gift, if you will, to our listeners is um, what advice would you give to someone who either wants to work in your field or because you were also an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, what advice would you give? Well, um, you know, th th there's a few things. So, you know, in the field that I'm in, or, you know, if you're wanting to get into, you know, nonprofit work or charitable work, um, is really, um, you know, find the cause that lights you up. And we all have, we all have that thing, whether it's, you know, whether it's something related to health, or whether it's children or, or animals or the environment or whatever it is, um, find your cause. Um, you may not be able to be, you know, employed full time in, you know, a role like mine right away. Um, but if you're passionate about it, you'll be happy to do the work. Um, and, you know, build relationships with people who are connected to, you know, that, that area, that thing that lights you up, um, because, you know, it's the whole thing about, you know, it's, it's who, you know, there's, there's some truth to that from the standpoint of it may, it may connect you to opportunities, but also just to glean their wisdom, because sometimes it's a great opportunity to try something on and see if it really does fit for you or not. From an entrepreneurial standpoint, from my business experience, part of the advice is, you know, again, looking for those moments of progress, but also speaking as somebody who, um, you know, has opened and closed a couple of, you know, small businesses now, know when it's time to go. Um, because I think a lot of us wrap up our identity in what we do. And um, the closing of those chapters can be experienced as a failure. And so I think about, you know, when I closed my retail store back in uh, 2013, I think it was 2012, 2013. And I incurred a lot of debt, you know, with that experience. And I had a tough time afterwards thinking like, oh, gosh, what have I done? What does this cost my, my family as far as, you know, from a debt standpoint? And then thinking, okay, um, I could also have prolonged this to try to, you know, rescue it or try to wrestle something out. But sometimes the writing's on the wall and it's okay to go, you know, I'm going to cut my losses um, because um, I've seen people struggle and struggle and struggle. And it's apparent to everyone around that it's either not the time for the idea or it's not the, the place. Um, but we dig our, we dig our feet in because our identity is tied to whether or not we're successful. The last thing I'll say is, you know, it's um, sometimes we don't get to do the work that lights us up. And our job is the thing that facilitates 
other things in our life that lights us that light us up so i've had times where i've you know languished in the corporate world where i've like okay you know i know i can do more than this or i know this isn't my quote-unquote calling but it's provided me financial resources or time off so that i can do those things that i'm really passionate about you know getting involved in you know board work or you know or creative projects or whatever it is and um, i think our society puts so much import around a job title and what it means and um it's you know more about like look look for those opportunities to do those things that light you up you may get paid for it you might not um but um yeah i think well yeah yeah like i, I was just gonna say i i can tell tell people this i've worked as a, a day job as a special needs worker and i've said this on the show before for for over 25 years but i took the job when i was in my early 20s because i wanted to be a writer and i didn't want a job that i took home with me and so now that <laughs> there are emotional days, like emotionally challenging times, you take some of that home, but you, but it would give me time to do the thing that I wanted to do, which is to write. And so now working as a professional editor and creating an online writing course, all of that has come about. It, there were a lot of situations where I, I wasn't really happy in this, you know, whether it was a certain group home that I was working in or a certain situation in the school. But like you said, that's, that that's okay you know don't identify with that and the other thing i'll say to what you just said is uh the idea of um if you have to close a business and and again we reiterate this on the show all the time that if you're an entrepreneur it, it's it doesn't it may be right especially if you're doing something online that your packaging is wrong or maybe right <clears throat> you just haven't found the audience you know yet and so it doesn't devalue what you do or what you've created and so trying and maintaining that distinction between the product that you create or the thing that you're um what you're trying to build with yourself is really is really important listen Jules, this has been terrific man i i just want to know um, i'm going to put links down below but um people can reach you or find you or are they able, can people make donations to your organization? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the, the best place to learn about the organization is through our website and our social media channels. Um, we're in the process of going through a rebranding exercise. So this is kind of, you know, Right now, the way to reach us is um, hars.ca, H-A-R-S.ca, or on social media, in particular, Facebook and Instagram, at Hars Kingston. And on our website, there is a donate link right on the homepage. Awesome. You guys are doing amazing work. Um, you know, send a shout out from, uh, from, from me to, to you guys. I, I mean, we're so lucky to have people like you stepping in and doing these important things. Um, so again, the links are below. Folks, if you get a chance, it's, a, it's an unbelievable organization that Joe's running and they do unbelievable work. And so please, please donate and at least inform yourself more about the topic. Anyway, that's it for this week's show. My name is Stephen Burns. This is Project Dreammaker. Jill Shadad, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. 